Welcome to the Connectomics podcast. Here we talk to theorists and practitioners about how notions of embodiment can help us to connect an understanding of ourselves with an understanding of the cultural, technological and ecological worlds of which we are part. I'm your host, Mark Michael James. I'm a cognitive scientist and philosopher at the Okinawa Institute of Science and Technology in beautiful Okinawa, Japan. Please join me to connect with our guest for today in just a moment. Welcome, welcome, welcome to a new year and to a new season of the Connect Omics podcast. Hopefully I'm still in the window within which such things are permissible. If I'm not, please forgive me. I hope that you can find it in your heart to do so. We have an awesome lineup of guests over the coming months uh, for more conversations at the intersection of embodied cognitive science and the wider world. You know the drill, you know the deal, you know what to expect if you've been a long-time listener. If you're new to the podcast, I would recommend going back and listening from the start. As some of those earlier conversations do serve as some grounding for much of what we continue to talk about. But if you don't have the time for all of that, don't be scared off. I do make some effort to ensure that each episode stands alone. Speaking of standalone episodes, I have a very special one for us to get the ball rolling into this new season. But before I introduce my guest, let me just say a few words. Uh, I first want to say thank you for tuning into the podcast. If you were here last season or if you're here today listening, we really appreciate your support. I really hope that you're enjoying the show. And when I say we, there is a very small team of us at this point, that are coordinating to make this show happen. Uh, if you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the podcast so you don't miss any episodes. And if you're enjoying the show, we would be really grateful if you could leave us a review on whatever the platform is that you use to listen to the podcast. As you will know from listening to all the other podcasts that you listen to, your reviews really do help us reach more people and grow the community. Lastly, uh, please help us spread the word about Connectomics by sharing it with your friends and colleagues or anybody you think might be interested in listening. With that said, um, my guest for this month is Dr. Abiba Bahrain. Abiba is a cognitive scientist and presently working as a senior research fellow for Mozilla, studying trustworthy AI. Abiba received her PhD from the School of Computer Science in University College Dublin, which not incidentally is the same place as me. And indeed, we set out on our PhDs at the same time uh, with the same supervisor, in fact. Now, I'll not say much about her research 
here as we get into the details in our conversation, but let's just say that people are taking notice and for very good reason. Um, something we didn't get a chance to talk about in the podcast, but I was excited to because, uh, frankly, it's very cool. Amongst some of the recent responses to our work um, was an episode of the uh, fantastic podcast, Weird Studies, and it was dedicated to a close reading of one of Biba's papers. I should say the fantastic and very, very popular Weird Studies podcast. Um, and if that wasn't cool enough, she recently shared the stage with the Dalai Lama at the Mind and Life gathering in Dharamsala in India. If you're not familiar with the Mind and Life Institute, uh, their uh, institute uh, organized to bring together uh, Buddhist perspectives with scientific perspectives, particularly cognitive scientific, neuroscientific perspectives, uh, to inquire into the nature of mind together. And that happens and has been happening every year for, I believe it's every year for uh, close to 30 years at this point. Some of my details might be shaky there, but in and around, that is more or less right. Um, what I value about Abiba beyond her very insightful work um, is her willingness to have difficult conversations, um, uh, but do so in a way that's kind of interested in preserving uh, some shared humanity. Uh, seeing how Abiba uh, commits to the things she cares about, often in the face of significant pushback, is a continuing source of inspiration for me and, and I know for many others. Um, we often have the sense as academics that we want to make a difference in some way, uh, that we want the world to be tangibly better off because of our presence. Um, and I don't know for me, sometimes at least that feels <laughs> quite distant. Uh, but with Abiba's work, it's very apparent that she is making precisely such a difference. Uh, maybe it's not as great as some would hope, um, as we'll hear about in the podcast, but uh, I think her work is definitely helping us uh, think about our orientation within this very digitized, uh, technologized world uh, in which very often the, the human factor seems to get set aside for the kind of techno-scientific future that some people envision to be inevitable. And in the podcast, we talk about a range of things. If you don't know already, Abiba's work generally uh, exists at the intersection of um, artificial intelligence, ethics, and understandings that derive somewhat from embodied approaches to cognitive science and critical theory and black feminist critical theory. Um, and as you'll hear, she leverages all of these frameworks and positions and perspectives in ways that have genuine, helpful, uh, meaningful effects in the world. So I'm honored to have Abiba on and to be able to share this conversation with you. So without further ado, I bring you a conversation I had with Dr. Abiba Bahrain somewhere around the middle of November 
2022. Hello and welcome to the podcast, Abiba. Hey, Mark. It's so nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, good to have you on. It's uh, it's been a while in the making. Um, yeah. We've had a few friendly conversations over and back, and always anticipated this happening at some point. So nice to finally make it happen. Yeah, nice to finally be here. Nice to finally get this opportunity to chat. Yeah, absolutely. Um, maybe we can kind of foreground this conversation a little bit, um, or background the conversation, give some framing a little bit, just to say that um, me and Abiba know each other for a while. We were PhD students under Fred Cummins. We sat in desks beside each other in a shared office for some period. Um, I guess we met probably, I don't know, how, how long ago is it, Abiba? Maybe eight, nine during, years ago? During the master's. is Has it been that long? It must you be. Were, you, we were sharing. We were doing the same, a couple of courses. Uh, you were doing the master's, the, uh, I don't know, something consciousness. Right, cognitive science and consciousness, or something. No, so the masters I was doing was uh, consciousness and embodiment in UCD. Yeah, consciousness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you were uh, doing was it the straight Cogsai masters? Yeah, the Cogsai masters. So we were doing, uh, I think, Maria's courses and then Fred's courses together. That's right. Yeah, we had Maria's course, the cultural mind. I think it was. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sometimes I wonder, like, <laughs> I'd love to go back and replay some of those courses. You know, like, um, you, uh, I don't know, you revisit somewhere you've lived a long time ago and you go back and you realize you've got a much more educated mind and you can see things you didn't see in your own locality or whatever. And I feel like with those courses, they, you know, they're so rich and helpful and valuable and so on. And a lot of it just goes over your head when you're a student and when you're just encountering for the first time. Yeah, just a perpetual, I just want to be a perpetual yeah. student without, yeah, the, ta- without yeah. the tests, without the exam. <laughs> and without the brokenness. Because <laughs> <laughs> one thing I realized after finishing the PhD and starting like a proper job is like, wow, I'm not broke anymore. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think I'm like, I don't know if I'd call my job a proper job at this point. So I'm hovering on the precipice of, I don't know if I'm broke mm. or not. <clears throat> mm. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah. so maybe, maybe a bit about UCD, maybe that's a good place for us to start. So um, beyond our own, you know, encounter and meeting, um, UCD, Cogsai, you were introduced to embodiment at that point, both of us were, I guess. Um, Mm. Can you maybe bring us back to that, bring us back to that encounter? I should say like this, this, this uh, podcast is largely about embodiment and its intersection with larger concerns. So embodiment is generally a, a starting point for us here. Yeah, so that master's, I guess that was like, it, it, even even now, eight, nine years 
Is it actually eight, nine years? It just feels a bit too long. Even even uh, even after so long ago, it feels like it was such a good program, at at least for 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 um, for a stage that I was in, because it introduced us to so much like truly interdisciplinary material we were mm. doing courses in in neuroscience from the neuroscience department from the philosophy department from the psychology <clears throat> department from the computer science department from even um we were even doing a little bit of you know social network stuff from from the school of sociology so it really was, you know, a little taste of everything that mm. intersects with with the brain and with the mind and with human behavior. So it really, I mean, in in retrospect, when you think about it, it felt it could have it, it it like all the courses were a little just standalone, and it it took a lot of hard work to bring everything together. Sometimes things didn't come together in the end, but yeah. even given that. Uh, uh, it was, I think, one of the best things I ever did. Mm. Uh, and then, of course, I wanted more, so I, I went back for for a PhD. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. What yeah. you say, the uh, the the intersection of so many different disciplines, but also even within those disciplines, so many different perspectives, right? Like the the philosophy department in in UCD is is kind of renowned for bringing different perspectives they have a really strong analytic tradition there but they also have a strong phenomenological tradition they're super open to advances in cogsci very interested in the empirical sciences so yeah it really was a good melting pot mm. yeah 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 absolutely yeah and i also miss you know those simple days being a student you didn't have much to worry about <laughs> you just like do you just did your coursework and then you know you hang out get coffee yeah a lot of coffees cool. yeah a lot of coffees a lot of coffees a lot of coffees yeah 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 and, uh, the... yeah and UCD UCD has changed a lot since our masters is that right um yeah, because I'm still there. I still hang out. I'm still, uh, yeah, part of the, part of the lab, <clears throat> part of the uh, complex software lab. Yeah. Okay. So I go there once a week. Right. At least I try to. Yeah. Okay. Without being too disparaging, how has it changed a lot? Because is it is it COVID related changes or just like, I don't know, the structure of the departments yeah. or. COVID-related changes, which are kind of kind of gradually being removed, but also uh, even like the the buildings, the structure of the more more I noticed the structure of the you know the physical space, like you know mm. where we used to get coffee and hang out in spaces like that. Um, you know, cafes come and go. There is new places, mm. and yeah just yeah that kind of stuff yeah i guess during covid right a lot of those cafes would be kind of subcontracted to actual businesses right so if they're in mm. private hands they're not going to be kept up by the university when there's no people there to to, to mm. fund them 
Um, <clears throat> yeah, so you're still at UCD a little bit, but you're also um, working at, at yes. Mozilla Foundation. <laughs> okay. So what are you doing there? Can you describe that for us? Yeah. So uh, it's a fellowship. I'm a senior fellow in Trustworthy AI. So it's basically doing the kind of similar kind of research that I was doing during my PhD, especially towards the end of, you know, my PhD where, so I at the start of my PhD uh, and, and we were, you know, we, we, we were very close then at the start of my PhD, we knew each other's research. So you can remember it, there was a lot, uh, a lot of focus on on cognition uh, on you know human behavior and, and on embodiment but as my phd progressed i was doing more and more kind of ai ethics stuff i was mm. like poking around data sets a lot i was poking around models a lot i was doing uh, uh you know the kind of work <clears throat> what's now called auditing um Mm. Yeah, and and the latter part of my thesis and some of the chapters in my thesis also have ended up being a lot of that kind of work, a lot of that kind of audit work. So the the fellowship at Mozilla is kind of uh, and and I I towards the end of my PhD I had so many ongoing work, so many ongoing projects. I had to I, I had to just basically decide. Okay, a, a done PhD is better than you know a perfect mm. one, or mm. as or whatever the saying says, because uh, I could have just kept adding more. I could have kept working on, on more of my projects, and I had to kind of decide I'm including this and I'm not including the rest into my thesis. So I had a lot of leftover work that. I was kind of doing during my PhD that I wanted to continue doing. Mm. So it, at Mozilla, I'm basically kind of like continuing the same kind of work, uh, writing academic papers, doing dataset audits, um, uh, and collaborating also with uh, other Mozilla fellows, and also uh, you know working towards. Uh, Mozilla objectives and Mozilla goals as well as you know I'm, I'm as as part of being a fellow there I have to give a little bit of my time to Mozilla itself as well but sure. it's it's fine it it all aligns uh, <laughs> yeah so <laughs> yeah so basically yeah so some of my bro I'm also the thing I I love about Mozilla is like I have. I have a freedom to kind of, you know, you know, um, develop my own research questions and chase my own research projects with, uh, with without much constraint. So, uh, the projects I'm working on at the moment are some of them that have that were that you know that started um, towards the end of my PhD. Some of them have started new now, but all very much in the same line of thinking, uh, all very much, you know, things that I, I pursue, uh, you know, out of my interest. Mm. So, <clears throat> so one of my major, the major things I'm doing is data set audit. 
as I mentioned. So uh, in 2020, uh, myself and my colleague Vinay Prabhu did uh, an audit of ImageNet and tiny images. And uh, we found out that tiny images has a lot of problematic content and a lot can, of. Can you can you um, just back up a little bit and, and describe what you're referring to there? So tiny images and image nest. These are what exactly? Yeah, these are large scale datasets, image datasets. So datasets that are used to train and validate computer vision models. Um, so ImageNet is a canonical image set, image data set. That's like it's a really good data set. At least within you know within the vision community, it's the gold standard. It's a data set that's been you know audited, that's been improved uh, again and again and again. Uh, but you know, as with any data sets that come f that's sourced from the internet. Um, you will always have problems. You will always have issues because you know uh, the internet is full of issues. And you know when when you source <laughs> that's, when you that's source understating your... it, I think yes. Yeah. And <laughs> um, so yeah, we looked at ImageNet. Uh, ImageNet, uh, as I said, is a gold standard. It's been examined and audited and revised and you know improved over and over again. Uh, we also looked at tiny images, whereas tiny images was never audited. We were the first to audit it. Actually, we landed on on tiny images by accident. So we've our target was ImageNet. Uh, we audited ImageNet. We found content that shouldn't be there. You know, images of children and um, images of even people we knew from academia. Uh, you know, upskirt images of women and, and things like that uh, and, you know, various problematic associations. And we were at the write-up stage and like, okay, we've done the analysis, we have the results. And in during the write-up step, uh, we were like, okay, now that we've done the work, let's give some background context uh, some historicity to, to the, to the write-up we are doing. Uh, and so I went digging on the history of ImageNet and ImageNet, you know, when you are assembling a data set, you need, um, you need a structure, you need a taxonomy to sort, to sort your, your data set by end. ImageNet took its taxonomy from WordNet uh, and WordNet I know has been, you know, so problematic uh, and, um, so I went then, I wanted to then write a little bit of critical perspective onto, onto the problematicness of word needs. And then uh, that's where we landed, you know, that's where we questioned what other data set has been set up using word taxonomy. And then we realized, you know, tiny images, another, is another data set that's been that's been assembled using the word taxonomy, and then okay, can, can, can I can I just slow you down here a sec? So, just just so I can get clear, and maybe some of the listeners too. So, we have uh, WordNet. That's what you called it, right? Yeah, the, the primary one. So this yeah. is sourcing images, just like trawling the internet, just picks up all the images it can get access to, or it has no. some sort of filter. 
So WordNet is a, a kind of like a, a, a tree structure. This was assembled by some linguists, I think, in the 1960s or 70s. So WordNet is basically just, a, you know, um, a, a huge uh, source of words where words are assembled by tree, by, you know, by closeness, by cro by cro by proximity, by similarity from each other. By so like really sem semantic proximity, so almost like a yeah. giant thesaurus, that, like a network thesaurus or something. Yeah, yeah, WordNet is just that. It's just, a, okay. a, you know, a giant source uh, of words where words are taxonomized, nouns are uh, also verbs, I think, are taxonomized. So so it, it's like it gives you a structure of it gives you a taxonomy of, you know, how, you know, certain concepts are structured. And when you are assembling a data set, you need some structure to to house, you know, to 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 sort out your giant, your massive data data sets. So ImageNet used WordNet. They only used the noun because it's also huge and, and you know, it's giant. Okay. So they used the <laughs> noun to uh, to kind of to, to structure to structure their own data sets. Okay, so just, just to be clear, so they're using the noun <laughs> words as some sort of filter architecture that then they use images related to the noun words. Yeah, they used uh, they then they then sourced images based on the nouns of WordNet. Okay, okay. And they used the WordNet architecture to 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 structure the dataset. Okay. Yes. So this was this was just us trying to give a little bit of background into the write up. So then we went around. We went we went down the rabbit hole of WordNet and looked at other datasets that are assembled using the WordNet architecture, the WordNet, uh, you know, structure. And I, feel, I, I feel like you're inviting me into a conspiracy theory here. This is super, <laughs> super gripping stuff, Abiba. Keep going. And then, uh, and then we found that Tiny images has never been audited, and it's just like we we're just prompting it with various, you know, words, and uh, it, it it just like it was really unbelievable. It was unbelievable. At at one stage, I was just on Wikipedia, typing, you know, a list of racial slurs and a list of you know offensive words, and I was just like taking those like the list of offensive words and and prompting the data sets you know one by one and mm. it's just like you just get tired of it because you know search after search re query result after query result it's it just comes up with really really horrific horrific images so oh, yeah. like we found like thousands of images associated with you know the n-word okay uh with with black people you know and you know lots of images of women associated with words such as you know whore and slut and things like that and then after you know uh, after a few thousands of these these uh, problematic associations we just got tired like okay it's all horrible so here is here's our findings the data set uh, curators can't do whatever we just we couldn't go through all of you know 
you know, the list is like right, infinite. Right, right, right. So, can, so can, can I uh, just just a few questions here just to keep this story alive in my head a bit? So, um, tiny images. Who is the proprietor of tiny images? Is it a research institute? Like you, I, uh, I, I'm still MIT. Okay, MIT. It was MIT, uh, and it was professors uh, at MIT, and then. Uh, like as soon as our research came out, uh, uh, we put it up on archive. Uh, journalists picked it up, and it went. They were. Um, they went to to MIT to ask the uh, the professors that have been, you know, assembling and maintaining this data. And uh, MIT took it down immediately and said, "This data is not fit for training." Or validating AI uh, models, um, okay. so it's like, yeah, it, it, yeah, and and yeah, that that was reported, I think, by right. so, over eighty <clears throat> news outlets, or even Fox News was reporting it. Oh wow! <laughs> so <laughs> that's when you know you've made it. So so so, so um, like the the normal procedure for one of these image sets. Um, is that they would go through this auditing process pretty rigorously such that there is nothing. Mm, you wish, you wish. That's not the normal procedure. No, that's auditing is a new thing. It's, it's, it's becoming a thing. Usually people just assemble data sets often from the internet because currently, you, you know, these days you need huge amounts of data set to train your AI model. And the only place you can get huge amounts of data set is the internet. And the common practice is just like scrape the wave for as big, as large, as, you know, as huge as possible for uh, large scale data sets and then assemble it and then use it to train your data set. That's the current norm. So mm. we're trying to push for auditing to become a norm because most people don't even know you know, what's inside the data set, what, mm. you know, what their data set contains. So that's mm. auditing is a new practice, trying to change that, trying to, you know, look into, you know, what's what's inside the data set. And usually you find horrible content that shouldn't be there. So, so for someone who's not familiar with this kind of thing, i.e. me, <laughs> so these data sets have been used to train some sort of, um, visual capacity of maybe something like a, a car or like a, a robot or like a face recognition software or something like yeah. this. <clears throat> so the problem is if you have these, say, undesirable images within the data set, you get some sort of bias in that, um, I suppose, yeah, I guess there's a bias built in yeah. to the, and those biases are somehow reflective of certain, say, dimensions within the culture that embed those yeah, biases, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For So for the sake of simplicity, you can think of uh, data sets or also uh, even AI models, uh, you know, in terms of you have a computer vision where the idea, uh, where it's based, based on mainly images, 
where the model can be, you know, a face recognition system, or as you said, uh, a system, for example, for a self-driving car that can, that can, you know, look around the, the visual space and recognize objects within that space. You, another, another element is the uh, text data or the NLP space where you are working with language data primarily and you know your data is text textual uh, textual data uh, and you have you know like you know large language models that mm. can that can uh, learn i say with a quotation mark uh, uh, you know the you know the the sequence of words and they can give you uh, you know they can generate for example sentences or paragraphs or whatever uh, uh, you also have like the, um, you can also work with, with voice data or video data. So these are like the kind of different elements. Mm -hmm. uh, but now that's changing. You have multimodal, multimodal models and multimodal data sets. So before mixing, for example, text uh, and vision okay. and voice would have been so difficult right. because they are of different modality. But now you have multimodal multimodality that uh, that for example you have multimodal data set that contains both text and images, oh, wow. uh, and you also have like you know multimodal models that can uh, generate images from a text prompt or that can uh, yeah so it's so that. So this is that where things are going so fast and things that used to be difficult are not so difficult anymore. So we have to also learn to to work with these multimodal data sets and not just like with image data sets. Um, so one of my current projects is actually auditing a multimodal data set that is uh, that's a data set composed of uh, image and text pairs. Mm. Okay, we, we'll yeah. come back to that to that in a second. I just wanted to ask one question um, from a moment ago. So, like, what, what? So, have there been, say, real-world consequences of these image sets in ways that we might not want them to unfold? Can you give examples? Do you have any? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so. Um... It's really for it's really difficult to to connect research with application mm. because they just feel like in they are in a different realm. But in one of my projects that I can talk about later, we are trying to link, we are trying to trace applications that come from you know top uh, computer vision academic papers so that's another topic but the point I want to make is that uh, research and application are often disconnected and to 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 trace the 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 downstream impact of a really and an, a specific data set would be really a lot of hard work uh, but we know mm. from experience but we know from you know, robust amounts of findings that, you know, uh, for example, when uh, 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 when models, uh, vision models, for example, when uh, face recognition models uh, fail, uh, 
you know, they have real real life consequences. So there has been so much study that shows that face recognition systems are much more inaccurate when it comes to darker skin females compared to light skin males. So there is a, a canonical research by Timnit Gavru and Joy Bolnamwini in 2018 that showed that they audited three uh, commercial face recognition uh, systems from IBM, from Amazon, and from Face++, and they found that uh, the error rate for darker female skin tone was 34.7%, whereas the error rate for light skin male was like under 1%. So then uh, this is the research side, and then you look at then, you know, real uh, face recognition uh, systems that are deployed into the world that are used by law enforcement, for example, in the U.S., we know that there have been three people that have uh, that have been persecuted, uh, that have been arrested due to error in facial recognition systems, and all those three people are black men. And uh, so this is like the the uh, this shows the the consequence the of the concrete the concrete consequence of the failure of these systems on real people, and all, this is. The scary part is like these are these three people are off we know of. There could be many more because it's really difficult to contest these systems, and people that are victims of these systems often don't know how they've been jailed. They don't know even if they do, they may not have the financial, um, you know, means to contest it. They they people are often disfranchised. They you know. They don't have the resources to to contest these things, so there could be many more that we haven't heard of. Mm. So, so how does something like that unfold, right? So, you have this system that maybe um, is being used by the police in a certain municipality, and they are using it like in a broad scale where they have surveillance cameras across the city or something and they witness a crime and then they misidentify someone? Is it is it the, the case that it would just yeah, come up so, like... Go ahead. Yeah, so people in the case of these three black men that have been arrested, they just, it just, it, it was just, it wasn't them. They were misidentified. Mm. And uh, through, you know, persistent contestation, uh, but also uh, 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 journalists play a huge critical role in bringing this to light. Uh, they were able to prove that they, they it's in fact is not them. It in fact is, you know, the error in the system that has misidentified them. Oh. Uh, yeah. It, and is, is there, I mean, what's the response been of the people who are, using and, and mobilizing these systems uh, is is there kind of thing is it just down to the stats for them yeah i mean you know facial recognition systems and their use by law enforcement is super problematic even even when it's accurate you know it, it doesn't matter if you are going to use it to surveil and 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 mm. monitor people you know it's still really bad 
So it's not just about it's not about it's not just about the accuracy. It's about you know days of technology to really you know invade people's privacy and to really just like surveil people every their every moment. So uh, it has so the accuracy front it has been improving. Uh, the systems are much a bit more accurate, but. Let's also not forget they are not entirely accurate. We still have state-of-the-art models still misclassifying black people much higher, like you know, with uh, misclassifying black people at a much higher rate in like as animal, gorilla, chimpanzee, that sort of stuff. And uh, and and the response like globally has been. Uh, not to uh, not to not to kind of um, uh, uh, not to what's the word I'm looking for uh, it hasn't been to slow down the use of these systems it's been uh, it's actually really scary even the Irish Garda uh, the Irish police has is uh, trying to introduce the use of facial recognition system for for the police here and people are like very strongly scientifically showing that these systems are biased and problematic and inaccurate but also they are a problem for for privacy for freedom of movement but you know the Irish government has been insistent and I saw some um analysis from a technology lawyer the other day uh, showing that you know the Irish government is actually breaking the law to introduce the facial recognition systems into into the public so i mean yeah you you find these systems like the london metropolitan metropolitan is using it uh, even you know even if you go to parts of say for example east africa uh, where people are, uh, you know, sorting um, who, which refugees should get aid or resources, you know, these official recognition uh, systems has become, uh, uh, you know, part of it. So it's really, I don't see it going down. I see it, you know, more institutions, more organizations are adopting it despite the criticism. It's also important to remember uh, these critics, these audit works, compared to the huge uh, market that facial recognition system is, the criticisms and the audits are, are, are really a tiny drop in the ocean. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, there seems a certain like techno-fatalism inevitability that people are somehow committed to, right? It's just that these things are on the march They've got even some autonomy and they're going to do what they're going to do. And we're just facilitating that process. And um, it's strange, mm. right? Because, I mean, at the end of the day, they're all regulated within some form of regulation. We have the capacity to do that better. Um, but we seem to be more inclined towards the kind of exciting, shiny future that we anticipate mm. these things are going to bring about and the the problems that they're going to solve in quotes um but often yeah they're producing more problems than they set out to solve in the first place right it's a real problem yeah 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 and and they're not regulated they are not uh, that's that's part of the problem these systems unless you know auditors or journalists or uh, critics 
um, go in there and kind of scrutinize them. And you can only scrutinize systems that are open source, systems that you have access to for a lot of these systems because they are commercial people. We just don't have access to to even look into the data, to even look into the algorithms. So unless, you know, people do some kind of, you know, critical work and then bring bring it to the attention to the public, a lot of this stuff happens in the background and people don't even know about it. So... There hasn't been many regulation. Uh, the, you know, there has been banning uh, in some, I think, like in in a few states in the U.S., for example, uh, there has just out, outright ban of facial recognition. Not not outright ban, just a banning for the use of police in in public mm. space. <clears throat> okay. Uh, so not outright ban. And the EU is currently debating where they stand with uh, with the use of facial recognition systems. So we have the uh, the EU AI Act draft that kind of says maybe we'll ban it, maybe not. So we'll see when when the uh, when you know when the final uh, uh, document is out, we'll see where where EU states stand. But there hasn't been any regulation. There hasn't been any any uh, oversight, unfortunately. Do you personally have some sense of like whether or not um, it's implementable? Do you have some sense of what level of, say, response amongst the public would be necessary or who the right what the right levers will be to pull in order to say in the EU case, right, to preempt the introduction of these types of systems in the mm-hmm. way that maybe they've already been introduced elsewhere? Mm. Um, yeah, I think, so like a rigorous examination of these systems in, in the data system, yeah, is really important. This is often done by, you know, investigative journalists, academics, lawyers. Um, yeah, so these are really important, uh, but also they are not enough. These are important in bringing about, you know, in kind of uh, in, in influencing regulators and policymakers because they listen to, you know, data, they listen to evidence. But these alone are not enough. You also need a... a an awareness of the general public because these systems are everywhere. I mean, like you find them in public squares, you find them in apartment complexes, you find them in parks. So you don't even know, but you are, you know, your your <clears throat> images could be matched against a data a database, you know, in when you are just happily going going uh, going about your your daily life. So. Mm. Uh, the invasiveness of this technology and what it could do and what it's doing to every individual and raising awareness to the general public is a really important factor in changing policy, in changing changing regulations, as well as the research that's happening. Because mm-hmm. unfortunately, you know, regulators and industry respond to public outrage rather than reason rather than you know begging them to self-regulate doesn't work Mm -hmm. that's my thinking at least that's my view 
Yeah, it's only when you threaten, threaten the bottom line a lot of the time. So, yeah, <clears throat> my feeling with an issue like this um, is that there's kind of layers of abstraction, right, before you get to actually what the problem is. It reminds me of something like, um, say, in Ireland a few years ago, we had demonstrations around water charges. That was quite mm -hmm. simple, right? You don't pay for water. <laughs> They're going to introduce a water charge. Um, do you want to pay for water that you didn't use have to pay for this has been imposed there's you know private interest and so on um for what was once a, a public commodity um or a public right i guess to a lot of people that was the, the presumption so it was easy to kind of rally around that build movements you know develop praxis in the in the light of that and respond to it and have a lot of su success but then you have something um which is ultimately much more pressing and concerning um, and challenging, but it's also much more complex, right? Something like the housing situation in Ireland, where there's a multitude of factors. Not everybody is invested to the same degree. It affects different people differently. Um, mm. And then even just to understand it, right? You've got mortgages, you've got interest rates, you've got not getting the mortgages, you've got so many different elements that feed into it um, that it's a notoriously difficult thing for people to organize around um, and develop any sort of praxis or response to it. Um, mm. So, you know, you show up to a, a march in the housing crisis, at least this was the case a few years ago. And despite the fact that everybody's talking about it, right? Like if you're talking about it with your friends all the time, you show up to the march and there's a kind of ragtag group of a relatively small representation of um, people there. And, and the feeling is everybody's there for slightly different reasons, even if there's some sort of target. And I wonder with something like this, does it face similar challenges? Because I know for myself, right? I don't know why, I think I've just been lazy, but I've, I've never been good at paying attention to my privacy online, like, I think I've got, I'm, I'm not even going to mention how many, but very few passwords. Um, and if you knew one of them, you'd know a lot of them kind of thing. Um, Mark, 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 Mark James. <laughs> I think a beam is like, tell me, you need to edit that out just as part of your privacy, your online privacy. Yes. But that's, that's yeah. just the, that's yeah. the, that's just the truth, right? And I'm careful with a lot of things in my life. You know, I look after a lot of things diligently, <laughs> but this kind of dimension of my life, it just seems like um, I heard someone recently say, you know, they got a notice from Google saying like they had 264 corrupt passwords. <laughs> and the person's like, well, I'd rather just restart my life than figure this out, right? I'd rather just change my name. <laughs> And that's the feeling, right? There's a kind of techno stress attached to all of yeah, this. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. And is that part of the challenge? Is it just that it's hard to yeah. like instill the inspiration? Like you see it, you're in the nitty gritty. It touches issues you care about. Um, and it's genuinely fascinating. But it took you a while even to like, you know, get into the rabbit hole and look around and see what was fascinating about it. Um, yeah. I guess my question is, is mm. that just, is that a, you know, a fundamental yeah, limitation? Yeah. yeah, it's not, it's not a fundamental limit limitation. I'd say it's, it's, 
it is intentionally the model. That's how it's structured. It's how surveillance is just like sold as convenience. Mm. So right. whenever you have convenience, it's surveillance. Whether it's Siri or whether it's Alexa, Amazon's Alexa, or whether it's some kind of take that simplifies some things for you, it's some kind of surveillance. So it's it's designed in a way that is supposed to make your life easier, and it's designed in a way that will obscure the fact that it can be harmful and the fact that it can come to bite you back. Yes. And I mean, like, it's a huge complex. It's like the, the whole facial recognition system uh, market is estimated to, uh, you know, to become, you know, billions of billions of dollars business. And it's growing because, you know, various institutions and corporations and organizations want to implement it because it's a way of efficiency, making your dev system efficient. It's a way of, you know, cutting back on money. Take, for example, you know, the, the UK um, um, passport office. I can't, I can't remember the, uh, the formal name. They are using, they are implementing face recognition systems because it, it's efficient and people can just like, you know, upload their images and then the system can match it and say, you know, if, if it's the right picture, if it's their picture, if it's, if, you know, if it's the right brightness, the right angle and all that. So it's, it's in a way like, you know, efficient and cutting back on money. But what they are realizing, what we are realizing now is that it doesn't respond to black faces, black images the same way. It, you know, it rejects applicants from, you know, mm. minoritized dark skin communities because there is a problem with the system itself. So what I'm trying to say is that, so the first thing you see or the first thing you hear about these systems is not their bias, is not about their inaccuracy, sure, it's not sure. about their discriminatory nature. It's mm -hmm. about how they are make how how you know technological marvel is making work, you know, flow frictionlessly or in whatever other bullshit words. And it and it's a business that's growing. It's a business that's like a huge, you know, money making empire. Uh, it actively, you know, hides all these problems. It actively makes querying it and challenging it and pointing out these problems really difficult. So it's not it's not a limitation. It's just the way the whole thing is set up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, you know being able to get through the passport queue in Europe a bit five minutes quicker than you would otherwise. And we we presume that's some sort of legitimate trade-off. <clears throat> I mean, what you're saying, right, doesn't give me a lot of hope. <laughs> I mean... I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm known, known as the buzzkill. <laughs> <laughs> the... Uh, the, uh, I'm not exactly looking for hope, I guess. Um, although a little bit would be nice every now and again. The the feeling is, I mentioned previously that there's a, a a kind of fatalism with respect to the inevitability of certain technological innovations. And you know the way you describe the situation as it presently stands, there's 
it it kind of invites me into that fatalism too a little bit, even though I'm not say maybe entirely happy about it, right? I, I do acknowledge that obviously, I mean, tech technology enables all sorts of genuinely efficient and wonderful things. <clears throat> um and obviously makes our lives better in an awful lot of ways. But yeah, there's something, I mean, I, I suppose my question is, yeah, if it's inevitable, what can we do? It seems there's an inevitable trajectory and yes. what's what's the response to that? Yeah. I don't I don't like to buy into the into the inevitability trajectory. I mean, like it's possible to make technology that is not surveillance. It's possible to make technology that's not biased, that's not discriminatory. It's possible to make technology that's not you know primarily aimed at maximizing profit and efficiency, but aimed at you know helping people who need it, helping the disfranchised, helping you know the most marginalized. People have shown this again and again, especially you know minoritized communities working in this space have shown that it's possible to create this kind of technologies. So the very fact that these groups are doing it shows that it's possible to do it a different way. Mm. So it's possible to regulate it. It's possible to change the, the business model. It's possible to change the objectives. And it doesn't have to be, yeah, it doesn't, any of this doesn't have to be, it's not inevitable, doesn't have to be inevitable. It's something that can change both through regulation and both through by changing objectives of the technology. Say, for example, instead of making surveillance the main objective, we can make, you know, we can make it, yeah. you know, who is, who is, who is left out of, you know, resources or benefits and mm -hmm. how do we make sure they get the resources? So by, by, you know, changing the objectives around those, uh, uh, you know, uh, around those objectives, it's possible to have a different kind of technology or a technology that has a different aim. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I live in hope. I live in, uh, in, yeah, not just hope, but also like it's, it's not, it's not a vision. It's something sure, that's sure. also happening. It's tangible, right? It's right. Also, yeah, yeah, it's also tangible. Yeah, and it's so pervasive, I guess it affects everybody. So no, nobody really escapes, right? If you have these ubiquitous surveillance systems, it's true across the board, more or less. I'm sure there are certain sort of privileges that allow you to avoid certain sorts of surveillance. And it's obviously worse for certain communities because of other contingent factors. But it is the kind of thing that affects everybody. So maybe it is the kind of thing um, that you can get more widespread support on and i guess what 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 you're saying is there's a need for a kind of top-down regulatory um levers i guess but there's also mm. yeah a growing awareness um and so i mean in some ways right you know the kind of work you're doing i mean uh, does kind of put it you know it, it it highlights that this thing is not only uh, pervasive and damaging but you know the way you uh, bring it to the public, I think, makes people interested in it somehow. Mm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it does affect everybody, but it's also important to note that not everybody is affected equally. 
as I mentioned, the case of the, you know, the the commercial face recognition tools that were audited uh, by, you know, by the gender shades team, I I mentioned the inaccuracies, the error rates are much higher rate, the darker the skin tone. So uh, it's not everybody's affected equally. The the more you are at the margins of society, the more you pay, you know, the, the, the highest the price you pay. And, sure. and if you are creating the technology, of course, you benefit the most. So benefits and harms are distributed unevenly. Mm, people yeah. that are creating these things benefit the most. They have so much to gain. Whereas people that are at the margins of society have so much to lose. Yeah, of course, that's that's obviously very important to keep in mind. Um, mm. I suppose my own reflections were like, if it's the kind of thing that um, demands some pushback from a wide a, a wide population, and probably people in different, you know, situations within that population. Maybe it is the kind of thing that's uh, capable of getting that kind of traction. Right? It's like climate change; it doesn't affect everybody the same, but ultimately, there's mm. one planet, and it affects all of us. <clears throat> um, but yeah, thank you for <laughs> re-emphasizing mm. that point. Um, okay, mm. so you've you've got some you know, history in in body cognitive science, and we haven't really talked about that much. Um, but, I mean, there's a million different ways. I don't think we're going to fit as much as we might like into this conversation, right? And, and I have a few things in mind that I have to get to before I let you go, and we don't have much time left. Um, but before we get to those things, which hopefully are a bit more fun, <laughs> well, not that we haven't been having fun, the uh, yeah, so you've you've done some work in embodied cognitive science. Uh, you wrote a paper um, for a popular outlet some years ago, um, looking at, I guess, some of the precursors to contemporary, say, somewhat more traditional cognitive scientific approaches. Um, and you were looking mm -hmm. at some of the some of the origins in that and in. in some of the Western philosophical traditions. So, um, mm. <clears throat> yeah, maybe I'm sure you know the paper I'm referring to. The, the... Yeah, yeah. Is it the impossibility of automating ambiguity? No, that's not the one. I'm talking about the Descartes paper. So the one where you uh, you talked about Descartes was wrong. Oh, Descartes was wrong, yeah. <laughs> Let's come back to impossibility of automating ambiguity. Um, but... Yeah, so Descartes was wrong. You had this uh, very nice analysis of that, um, I suppose, history of ideas. And then you were drawn on some, I guess, also traditional understandings, right? But they were more embedded in a kind of relational understanding. Mm. Um, okay, yeah, can you walk us through that paper? It was a really nice paper. I think a lot of people resonated with it a lot. Yeah, that was like, that feels like ages ago. That was like at the start of my PhD when I was a first year PhD student. Yeah, I remember uh, we were in a, we were in that <laughs> funny office that the, the sun yeah. used to shine in the window and it was, it was yeah. kind of strange. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. Um, yeah, so that was, um, oh gosh, <laughs> I can't even remember the details, but the idea is that uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it's kind of re-emphasizing uh, 
traditional cognitive science tends to to limit you know um, mind to the brain or, or tend to think you know you know the the mind ends um at the brain ends the mind ends at the skull and that the self ends at the skin so uh, the idea is like whereas these other theories have um shown that you know the person is relational through and through no person exists as an island you know if if you cut the social uh ties the person just like i give oh it's coming back to me i give the example of solitary confinement the person like devoid of other people as the relations it just withers and dies uh, mm. So the idea is that we are relational through and through, we are embodied, um, and it's important to look at these historical and cultural uh, and contextual factors when trying to understand a person. Uh, they are just as important looking at brains or or just like the physical body. Mm. Uh, yeah, and yeah, it, it's uh, uh, the that article was phrased in a way that uh, that shows like it's just the Western um, uh, Cartesian individualistic thinking that stands out as as the outlier, as the weird one. Because if you look at other cultures, I look at Ubuntu, the you know African philosophy way of life, where you have the similar emphasis. And if you look at you know uh, Emphasis on, from, on the on the relational dimensions of yeah it. emphasis on the relational yeah uh, and if you look at you know critical um, scholars such as uh, Bakhtin from you know the USSR Russia now uh, uh, or uh, you you find similar emphasis on the on on relatedness on dialogicality um, and uh, yeah, the idea is that it's just Western thought that really is the weird one out in emphasizing individuality. Yeah, yeah. And do, do you find that this, which is really the kind of embodied perspective that we you know talk about on this podcast a lot. Um, so I think most mm-hmm. of the, the listeners will be familiar, but th- that, you know, that obviously, like you said, at the start of this conversation, when you started your your work, there was so many intersecting uh, concerns and disciplines and ideas but do you find that that for me and I think for a lot of the people who join me on this podcast that the kind of insight there about the relationality of embodiment and how embodiment kind of gets us at that right we're already in touch with the world um, Mm. and that kind of that intimacy with the world is uh, always foregrounding any sort of cognition that we might wish to speak of do you feel Mm. that that um attuned you in some sense because what i'm getting at here right is Mm. you know connectomics right the name of the podcast is about embodied cognitive science and if it has some sort of bearing right if we do science in this register does that inform the other things we do in a in a helpful way and Mm. Yeah, so is there a sense that, you know, doing that work maybe attuned you to other concerns in particular ways and maybe even the stuff that we've already talked about, right? It's somehow there in the background. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not only attuned me, it also influenced my work. Weirdly enough, believe it or not, it influences my 
work in like and how uh, I examine models, how I I analyze um, uh, you know large scale data sets. It it really finds its way into how I think about these things, how I frame these things, uh, and it really has shaped and influenced uh, my writing. Uh, and uh, in some parts, it really has integrated into my current work. Mm. I think, yeah, this is, yeah. If we uh, look at the the impossibility of automating ambiguity, it basically is, uh, you know, examining models that that you know claim to sort and taxonomize and and predict, you know, social phenomena such as human behavior. Uh, okay, just 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 let let me interject quickly. So you've just mentioned uh, this paper that you mentioned a few minutes ago. This so this was a relatively recent publication of yours, the impossibility of automating ambiguity. Um, so you're saying some of this philosophical conceptual framing actually was informing that. So th this is a really nice example, maybe, of where these two yeah. worlds intersect. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that paper is uh, uh, where you find the that you know my my training in embodied cognitive science really has uh, influenced my writing and my thinking in the AI ethics space. So I, for the sake of time, I'll just like summarize it very briefly. The core uh, of that paper is you know you have you can you can maybe sort and classify and like accurately predict physical systems say for example uh, ai models that uh, that are um you know for board games or uh, now casting which is like wizard prediction just for like a short amount of time the next two or three hours or even protein folding these things are you can build models that are pretty accurate, but also, uh, you know, devoid of, you know, ethical and moral questions because you are dealing with, you know, relatively a phenomena that can be relatively captured by by enough amount of data, and then you can you can build a model. Whereas when you move into the social space, if you are trying to, you know, sort social social phenomena, or if you are trying to predict someone's behavior because people are not, you know, brains in vats whose every steps can be mapped from A to from beginning to end, mm. because people are not like that, because people are relational and messy and historical and cultural and relational through and through, you really can't, they are non-determinable. Non, non they are in, in uh, complexity science, they, uh, they call it non-compressible. You cannot compress it. You this is something you can't capture with, no matter how vast amount of your data, mm. because I could. There are infinite ways for me to behave in the next, you know, short amount of time or in the looks in the next long amount of time, because that's the nature of human behavior. It's messy. It's non-predictable. It's non-compressible in data. So this is where my uh, embodied COGSI training comes in. And I make the argument that, uh, you know, you cannot make a, a, you cannot make accurate predictions of human behavior because of, you know, all these, you know, because of all uh, uh, what embodied COGSI and complexity science tell us about, about, about humans. 
Uh, and it's not only that it's not scientifically uh, unfeasible, uh, but also when you sort and predict, you know, social phenomena such as human behavior, you are into, there's also a huge red flag uh, with, you know, ethical and, and moral questions because uh, it's not just, you know, uh, your model that stays in a lab or some kind of theoretical contemplation. It's something that is likely to be applied into the real world, which will then have real consequences on real people. Uh, so yeah, those are those are the core arguments uh, uh, I, I make in that paper. Yeah, that's really nice and yeah, fantastic kind of leveraging of certain insights in a practical way. I think you know when we so we have all the complexity and we could talk about even you know super complex non-living systems and the challenges that <clears throat> come with predicting uh, the outcomes of those systems. Weather systems, for instance, are notoriously different, difficult beyond. Mm certain uh, timescales <clears throat> but then once you introduce consciousness right you've been all, all together <laughs> another another um another layer uh, layers even yeah. the wrong word another dimension to the system that um introduces a a degree of indeterminacy that just yeah rules out any sort of real predictive capacity um yeah this is this yeah. is really you know this goes back to the kind of cartesian there's one view the cartesian world worldview right that says in effect well i guess descartes had a dualistic account that maintained there was some freedom at the the level of consciousness i guess so maybe it's, it's unfair but he nevertheless had a mechanistic dimension to that view mm. that became so dominant that Descartes' own, you know, dualistic account got shoved out of the way, and the mechanism just took over for a lot of people. So, within that view, mm. it makes sense to think, oh, well, these are just difficult to predict, but nevertheless predictable systems. Um, mm. <clears throat> but yeah, the complexity view, and then in particular when you introduce consciousness into that, um, yeah, the, the kind of level of indeterminacy in the system makes any sorts of uh, mm. predictive efforts futile frustrating uh, times even for ourselves right when we want to predict how we're going to respond to a particular event or situation we just have to show up and see how it unfolds um yeah i guess it, there, there is there is an interesting dimension where you know you can kind of um design environments to make certain outcomes more probable right but all you're ever doing is increasing the probabilities you're never actually determining those outcomes yeah exactly exactly yeah um i'm conscious of time oh, okay um, sorry i let that run on a bit okay i'm gonna let you go but i have two questions let's have for you. part two let's okay. have part two okay <laughs> okay so okay so okay we'll get back to these questions again a bit <clears throat> um mm. just let me tell the listeners the questions i was about to ask are are very exciting so come back for part two okay. um <clears throat> The uh, okay, just before I let you go, can you? I mean, people can find you pretty much anywhere, but um, do you want to <laughs> direct to if you just um, you big test just like facial recognition systems? <laughs> <laughs> I think if you just type A, B into Google, you probably get a B bear coming up as one of the search terms at this point. Um, <clears throat> the uh, do you want to give people a um, touch point for you if they do want to connect with you 
Uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, I'm active on Twitter. Uh, but if it's something serious, uh, it's probably better to email me. Um, so my Twitter handle is at Abebab. So A-B-A-B-A-B. Uh, and uh, my email address is, should I type it for you somewhere? Mark? Um, if you want to. So, um, yeah, we could add it to the show notes. So it's uh, yeah. Actually, I have I have your email. If if you don't want yeah, to, yeah, maybe yeah. Just... So people, yeah, yeah. People can ask for for my email if they want to email me. Uh, okay. I'm a little wary of putting my email out there. Yeah. Um, uh, do you have your password for your email? Just while we have you on the. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, Viva. Listen. One. Good, good, to, good talking right. to you. Um, okay. I'll let you go. So, um, yes, uh, I'll speak to you next time. Yeah, we'll have to come back for part two, okay? Yes, yes. Okay, ciao.